You've got the music. You've got the desire. You've got the passion. We've got the knowledge. The musicpreneur.com podcast starts now. Welcome to the Musicpreneur podcast. Hosting this episode is Jim Lambie. And we are welcoming a very interesting guest to, to this episode, Bob Lord. And having done some research on him before this, I, I have to say there's a lot to learn about him. I, I, I just invite you to get curious about Bob. He has, um, he's gone from bass player to a business owner. Uh, he is, and everything in between is, if you look at his website, you're going to find out he's a band leader, a composer. Then he's a, a, an influencer in the music business, producing with Parma Re- Recordings, uh, over a thousand recordings, working with artists such as Pete Townsend. I mean, there's so many things he has done, and I, I have to say, honestly, Bob, I'm a little intim- intimidated. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, from one bass player to another, there's no need to be intimidated because you and I, we can only do one thing at a time, right? One note. <laughs> Maybe two notes. Maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get a chord in here somewhere. A dyad for sure. But yeah, no, no, it's it's great to be here, and uh, it's good to be talking to um, a fellow bassist for sure. Yeah, and we're also kindred spirits in that I'm a fellow New Englander, as That's we right. say. I, I I've been away for so long. I don't really have a Rhode Island accent. I'm from Rhode Island, Warwick, Rhode Island specifically, and you're living in Portsmouth, right? Yeah, right outside of Portsmouth, and it's a great, great place to live and to work. Nice, um, beautiful area. Got the ocean here. Got the mountains. It's it's great. I'm a new a New England boy at heart, and I think I always will be. Yeah. Did you ever live anywhere else, or has it always been right out of New Hampshire? Well, I grew up uh, north of Boston in a town called Andover, Mass. Oh, okay. Uh, and then I went to I uh, went to UVM up in Burlington for a couple of years, and after two years, I transferred down to the University of New Hampshire down here in in the Durham Portsmouth area. And I started my band Dreadnought, which is the band I still have today, 25 years later. I used to go up to Manchester a lot to go visit and work with my longtime teacher mentor, Jim Stinnett. He's out of uh, Candia, which is right outside of uh, Manchester. He's a longtime professor at Berkeley. Yeah, I, I, I don't know him personally, but no, I know the name for sure, yeah. Yeah, he was a neat guy. He recently passed away a couple months ago, which is real sad news. But it was always nice to go up to Manchester or to New Hampshire and that little airport there. I usually get, I love the fall there. Nothing like a fall in New England, right? It's amazing. And uh, it's so unique. I've been really lucky in my career to travel all over the world and produce and make records and do business and make music and everything. And uh, there's something about this area, the seasons, the diversity of it all. I, I don't know if I could do without it. Then again, I go someplace warm with nice clear water and white sand, and then it makes you go, oh, wait a minute. But yeah, but New I, England is New England, man. I love it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, well, I live in Virginia Beach, and uh, I have to say I've, I've acclimatized well. To I would imagine you have. Milder yeah. weather. You know, people say, I'm from the cold. You know, I can deal with this. No, I've kind of lost that. <laughs> I've been here a while. <clears throat> Bob, so you go from bass player to where you are now. Not to, to to belittle or or not um, down or downplay all these accomplishments because there's a few questions I have I think will come from that. But what do you think it was? I mean, was there some sort of was it a curiosity thing or just opportunities came your way? I'm kind of curious how you go from bass player to CEO with over 30 employees in multiple countries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um- I guess I would say that if I if I told you that there was a master plan to end up doing exactly this precise thing that I'm doing right now, all these things, I, I, I'd be lying. It, there's no way that it was. It's just this kind of, you know, natural development and growth. And I think the thing that I've said, you know, you said you, you've heard some other kind of interviews that I've done in the past, but something I've always talked about is the fact that I just followed my ear at a certain point. Mm. And you know, I didn't learn how to play Bach when I was three years old. I didn't, um, I, I didn't go to music school, didn't go to conservatory. So for me, it really came from my hands was my, my playing was as a bass player. And then I would want to figure out, well, how do I do that? And how do I do that? Just kind of like led me to all these different types of music from, um, oldies and, and rock and roll to more sophisticated kind of prog rock, uh, you know, all this kind of more um, crazy adventurous material and into jazz and into classical. And it just felt natural. Every step has felt natural. Now, on the other hand, from the kind of migration into the business side of things, I think it was a couple of things that happened. First of all, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. And uh, I noticed that there would be a vacuum and there were little tiny baby vacuums all over the place all throughout my life. And it's like, well, 
no one's going to do that. Well, then I got to do it, right? You know, whether it's booking mm. the gigs or making the posters or whatever. And, um, you know, here I am uh, 30-something years later after I picked up the instrument. And uh, like you said, I got like three dozen staff and four going on five countries now. And um, it's required a tremendously thick skin over the years to to be able to do it. And, and you know, I think any artist, I think, needs to have some degree of a thick skin coupled with some sensitivity. Uh, and if it goes too far in either one direction, then it becomes tough to navigate. And that's been, I think my challenge has been to be sure that I don't lose that artistic side while mm. at the same time, making sure that, you know, I mean, I, I can't let small things get to me on a day-to-day -day basis. Otherwise I go completely mad. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a I think a logical evolution, but one that I, I did not anticipate, uh, fully. I get it with the th uh, the thick skin, but I'm curious to what specifically you've had you had to easy going about things that have come that obstacles perhaps or disappointments. I don't know. What what are you speaking to when you think thick skin? Jeez. Well, I just think back to like really when I was in the the deeper throes of kind of my performance career with my band. So my my band Dreadnought, we have a new record that's in the can coming out this summer for our 25th anniversary. I have a new solo record coming out um, uh, this spring, actually in one month. Uh, and, you know, we're much more, and I am much more into the kind of recording phase of my career for sure, especially being a producer and, and running, running my company. Um, but I think a lot of my experience uh, is born out of those days of being on the road and playing gigs and being in both sales and service, right? I'm the booking agent and I'm playing in the band that's got to play that night. So I had to fulfill every, every end of the obligation and, um, you know, an empty room, bad reviews, people who walk oh, yeah. out, uh, all these very basic formative things that any band, any artist that puts himself out there that they go through, right? That was the mm. kind of crucible in hearing the word no a thousand times in mm. being rejected over and over and over. I mean, I, I can think back to uh, dial-up internet days when I was booking gigs across the country for, for the band. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm talking about like make a hundred phone calls, get, you know, maybe 30 replies of those 30 replies, getting maybe 20 soft dialogues of those 20 soft dialogues, getting maybe... 10 true conversations of those 10 true conversations, three order cycles, which boils down to maybe one or two gigs, rinse, wash, repeat over and over and over and over. And I mm -hmm. found that those percentages, uh, they hold up basically in every facet of business and in life. And the thing is just can't let them get to you. And, mm. and you got to, and you got to take your small victories and say, Hey, listen, if I can do only 85% of that work to achieve the same result, well, then that's the direction I'm going to go. Um, and it's all these little failures over and over again that I think have determined where I've gone and what I've done. That's awesome. I, that, yeah, that reminded me of a, uh, of a number of, of that, that kind of struggle. And yeah, we see the byproduct of all that work, but we don't see this abyss of, of, of disappointments and time consuming and, and just building it and building it and being faithful to it. Well, it's, it's like being a player, right? Like you have to build in the practice time. You can't mm -hmm. just, you can't not factor that in. I mean, if that's what your gig is, that's a huge part of your life. Right. Oh, and, yeah. uh, so it's, it's all the, the, the part of the iceberg under the water. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that, that, that's the important part. The yeah. iceberg. I love that metaphor. Yeah. That's a good illustration. There's a lot of people don't realize how much work it goes into it. And what do you think, like, in, especially in those days, but now you've got so, moment, so much momentum, I imagine. What kept you going? You know, what wasn't just, uh, just the money. There was something else there. What, what do you think for you? There are much easier ways for any human being to make money in this world than to do what I have done, <laughs> to do what you have done. I mean, it's like, you know, I think in the music business, we have to work you know, triple, to, to achieve the same effect. And even then you're not even getting close sometimes, right? When you take a look at some of your peers and it's like, wow. Um, right. So it's never never been about the money. It's never been about that. It's it's about, to me, well, first and foremost, I love music. I'm obsessed with music. I always have been. Um, and I believe very, very much in the work that we do as a company, right? So I keep my, I've said this many times before in other interviews, but I like to reiterate it, but I have a separation of church and state where my music and the music of my staff is nothing that you will ever hear on a Parma project and a Parma recording on a Parma concert. I, I really firmly believe that um, even the appearance of a conflict of interest is too much. And we're musicians, right? We're, we're like moths who go to a light at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that if, um, if my job 
is to work and help the careers of other artists and other composers and to record their works and to support them. And that's my job. And, and I really, really believe in it. And I believe in the artists that we work with. So that's enough for me for motivation to get up because I got stuff to do and there's people I want to turn on to this music and, um, mm. and just, you know, look, being in the studio is being in a tremendously privileged position generally, right. To be able to make music in any way for a living. It's, it's mm -hmm. unbelievable. And I think it's a great responsibility too, because, you know, from my perspective, I'm trying to help the artist be the best artist that they can be. Not that, not to sound like me, not to do what I say to do, but to use my experience to help make sure that their vision is being realized as fully and completely as it can. And when in those odd moments that they're doing something stupid, it's my responsibility to say, Hey, it's a pretty stupid idea. Let's, right. let's consider something else. Right. And, um, but, but I, I love to do it. And uh, I think when you find something that you love as much as I love this, as much as you love, love music as well. Um, you know, it, you can't, you can't ignore it. You really no. can't ignore it. No, that's good. I, I, uh, you know, going back to the idea of going bass player to like, his, the other thing is how does a bass player, electric bass player, electric four string bass player, right? Cause I've heard you talk about that. Fretted, fretted. Right? I mean, I, I you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got the eight strings and stuff, but most people don't realize that that doesn't eight strings across. Like I have friends who have an eight string bass. That's eight right. separate strings. These are, right chorus effects like a 12 string guitar exactly and very cool sound um but to that point though classical music how how did that evolve you know I'm, yeah i know weird right like how did that happen right uh well i think look part of my my upbringing was listening to like more kind of sophisticated rock right so i remember my cousin getting me in a rush when i was really little very very okay. young um maybe seven or so i can remember hearing rush uh, you know, Tom Sawyer was was not brand new, but relatively fresh, right? Yeah. And um, and just being like, wow, this sounds and everything. So odd meter to me was very natural from a younger age. Like I could, I, I understood it and, and liked it. Mm. Um, but it took me a while to get there from a technical standpoint to be able to actually do the thing that I I, I like to hear. And I think from my perspective, um, whenever I experience something that I like. I try and reverse engineer it. Food, right? I got to eat and I say, this food is phenomenal. And I say, well, exactly. What did they do? How did they do it? Cocktails, same thing. I love to figure it out and then come home and try it. And, you know, we've been home quite a bit during the pandemic. So I've experimented quite a bit with food and music. Mm. Um, but, but music is the same thing too. And so, and so classical was one of those things where I was just more and more interested in more and more sophisticated colors and structures and understanding how it all worked. Um, and, and a couple of the things that I heard that really influenced me big time, uh, Petrushka by Stravinsky was, mm. just blew my mind the first time I heard the first tableau. Uh, Aaron Copeland stuff, um, especially his earlier material, like uh, the piano variations, the, like kind of the pre-populist um, Copeland. But mm. then, of course, when I'm listening to that stuff, I hear like Appalachian Spring and all that. And I'm just, it's the most gorgeous music you ever heard. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I heard uh, the Third Symphony by William Schumann which I thought was phenomenal. It's a, a two movement symphony. Uh, each movement's about 15, 16 minutes or so, depending on, on how you take the tempi. And, um, and the counterpoint in it was instructive to me. And just the way he, he used counterpoint in that piece and just, I mean, really beat you alive with it. You know, it was just unbelievable. And in uh, mm -hmm. hearing those things, I'm like, how exactly does that work? And that's really what launched me on that path. Yeah, the curiosity that leads to discovery, yeah. I, I thought I always thought of Stravinsky, especially the Firebird Suite, is kind of like its own heavy metal kind of. Oh yeah. If you blast it in your car in that one spot and let it surprise you, it can always make you jump. Oh yeah, and in, in, in Bartok, the same thing, and yeah. in, in, in a lot of these kind of this era of composers, I, I really like very much. And now, of course, I'm exposed to like you know thousands of of composers and ensembles and performers. I mean, it, it's amazing how much music I have in my life. So it can be a bit overwhelming. Um, but again, it makes those moments when you're in the studio and you're recording something and you can just feel the vibe, the right vibe occurring and it ceases to be something which is work. It's, it's flowing and it sounds really lame, but like, it's the truth when, when 65 or 70 people are in one room and they are all unified and the thing is working. Mm. I mean, that's an experience that I would love for all of my non-classical friends to feel. All my all my rock and roll buddies to be like, you gotta feel this, right? Like, right. and those are fun moments when when you get to bring people in the studio and they haven't experienced something like that before. And it's like, wow, it's so powerful. Right. And this this symphonic instrument is such an instrument. It's so oh, magnificent. I agree. It it, it is nothing that um, replaces being in person in that environment. 
Yeah. Um, you can watch as many videos as you want, but it is not the same. Uh, being in the room, being surrounded, feeling the vibrations like that. Oh my goodness. Well, that, that exact point I think is really important because it's such an interesting dichotomy, right? Like nothing feels as good as that when you're in that room right in front of it, right? I mean, because you're feeling the wind of the acoustic instruments, you're feeling the sound waves, you you feel it. Mm-hmm. The, the tricky bit is recording symphonic ensemble, right? You are not recording necessarily for what you are hearing in the room. Now you want to capture the sound of the room. You're hoping you're capturing everything correctly, mm-hmm. but you are making, you know, a, a facsimile of what's happening in the room to be heard through speakers. Mm. And it's really hard when I'm working with like a composer, for example, who for the first time is hearing a piece or their work or whatever played by the ensemble. Um, many of them, they, they want to go sit in the room and hear it right there in the flesh. And, and I have to say, listen, you know, I need you in the booth. I need you here to hear it through the speakers because this is this is the control system, right? Mm-hmm. This is what we're going to be be listening to it uh, through for the rest of our lives, um, and and that's always a different thing, right? It's a it's a different aesthetic, a different feeling, and that's the magic of production is how you can coax that correct sound out of this crazy ass ensemble. Oh my goodness, I I was uh, I'm recalling now as you're talking about the dilemma of taking this beautiful production and reproducing it in these circuits and speakers, yeah. right? And um, it speaks to a story I heard you tell on another podcast about working with Pete Townsend, where you went from fan to problem solver. Yeah. Um, so can you speak to that a little bit? What is that? Is that part of your journey of becoming a record a recording uh, company, uh, problem solving, making things happen that some people, because you got curious. I'm curious. I'd like to know, what was some of the steps that got you to that place where you could be a successful problem solver for these artists? Oh boy, that took me a long time. And, uh, you know, looking back when I was 18, I, I was convinced I knew everything 20, forget about it. Right. You know, my, mm. my head probably couldn't have even fit in this, the, the, the zoom screen right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, I think it's this kind of process of just self-development in a lot of ways, right? Like, okay. So, you know, I'm an only child. I'm a bass player. I'm a CEO, egomaniac, if left unchecked, right? And I have to work through other people. And um, I like to work through other people. I It took me a long time to learn how to do that, though. Right. Uh, especially when, you know, I'm, being a bass player, it's like you're connected to the sound. The thing that you're, the instrument you're plucking is making the sound. And it's a different thing in management, which I was not trained for. I, I didn't go to business school. I didn't go to music school. I'm I'm, a, I'm an English major, right? So I grew up um, in a different environment, but it was much more playing in groups and learning how to collaborate mm. um, and understanding that that you can affect change in different ways. In the problem solving aspect of it, um, it really just came down to making sure that I was getting whatever job I picked up done correctly, whether it was playing a gig or being in the studio and making sure we stayed on time or, you know, doing a custom audio job for a director or an ad agency or whatever. Uh, but definitely part of the evolution of my career has been the fact that so many of the people that I admired from afar, I've come to work with. I remember going to see Richard Stoltzman, the clarinet player play, got to be 20 years ago, maybe a little bit over that. And um, he was playing in, in New Hampshire and uh, I went to see the concert and it was so magnificent. He sounded so great. And uh, he played the, Cl- the Copeland clarinet concerto and he got finished with it. And there's like a section at the very end where it's like, you know, about a minute and a half or two minutes or so where it, it kind of winds up again. Mm. And so he wound it up and they finished the whole thing. The place goes ballistic and he ran around to all the chairs and they started right from that one section and just retook the whole ending. And the place went even more nuts. And I, I mean, how many times do you see that in a classical music concert, right? Like wow. never. Right. And I said, God, I love this guy. And then come to find, you know, whatever, six, or seven years later, I'm, I'm working with him in the studio and, hearing that unbelievable tone. So, you know, to go from someone who sits there in the audience is just like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard and seen to being able to work with that. Mm. It's, it's so, um, it's just so gratifying, you know, and, and even for like in a different kind of capacity, like thinking through efficiencies and thinking through long-term relationships, which I mean, I've had the same management team in Parma for uh, over a decade now, the same half a dozen people. We just added a couple more members onto the management crew, but but to have you know a team together for that long, uh, it's unusual. And yeah. to learn how to work together and to solve those problems at the beginning so you don't have to worry about them later on down the line, right? So what was at the beginning of a relationship, a much more complicated problem, becomes something which can be solved with a minimum of, of verbiage at this point in my company and the band and all that. 
And I think that's what I'm always looking for is collaborators who we can speak shorthand. We know exactly what to do. We know how to do it because we've been through the shit <laughs> so many yeah. times before. Right, right. And, um, yeah. And, and, and that's it. And, and then I guess on the Pete front, you know, to um, admire someone like that for, you know, for so long and to have been such a primary inspiration in my life and my, my own compositions, my own work. Uh, and then to see that there was a challenge that had to be solved. And I wanted to help legitimately, never mind that it was in my best interest to help. Even if it wasn't, I still would have wanted to have helped this guy out, uh, right? Right. I mean, you're getting to, <laughs> you're partnered up with a, a, a hero and you want to help him. <laughs> He's yeah, got I mean, to do. <laughs> absolutely. And, and to protect him and to oh, all the rest, like, you know, working with Dan Brown, um, the the fellow who wrote the Da Vinci Code. So I produced his uh, the music for his last project called mm -hmm. Wild Symphony. It's a, a children's book and symphonic um, uh, piece kind of bundled together, an illustrated children's book. And I've worked with Dan for six years now on recording music. I've known Dan for 15 years. And um, I feel the exact same way about Dan, which is I admire his work so much as a writer, as a musician. He's actually unbelievably talented. And uh, I'm surprised he didn't make it in music <laughs> before yeah. he became a writer. And, uh, and, and But I feel the same way, where like I admire him so much and I enjoy working with him so much. It's my job as a producer to, to help him out in any way I can and to make sure that his vision is exactly as it needs to be. So, uh, yeah, there's a theme here with helping, with problem solving. Uh, is that the thread that got you to the, the where you are now in terms of, I may have asked this already in a different way, but yeah. again, it's going from a band a, a band mindset, trying to make a recording contract happen uh, to now owning a business where you're helping facilitate other people's dreams. The thing you were trying to singularly make happen with Dreadnought. Yes. Uh, uh, now you're making that happen on a very interesting niche market that that all all these artists need help. I mean, they're they're into their creativity, the business end of of making recordings. That's uh, that's a whole nother instrument unto itself, right? The, yes. The, the pitfalls of of trying to get it to the public. Well, I, I would say the overlap of these things. I think you know to kind of directly address what you're asking, but the overlap is. When you find yourself backed into a corner compositionally, you know, what do you do? Wait a minute. How did I write myself into this position? Oh, right? You know, like, how did I compose myself into this corner? What am I going to do now? What, what, how do I get out of this? It's the same type of thing that I experience in, in business as well, right? You have all these kind of mini, mini dead ends that you have to back out of or crawl over or, or borrow beneath and, and figure out how to make them all work. So I think the um, the problem solving of of composition and especially group composition, right? I've always done songwriting on my own. I've always done my own my own work, but I really do enjoy writing with other people, especially um, the guys in Dreadnought, Justin and Rick. You know, and, and Justin and I we work very very rapidly together and um, speak a lot of shorthand when it comes to putting together uh, material. So mm -hmm. that kind of group composition is interesting because it really is about mutual problem solving. Uh, so right away, I was kind of in that in that ballpark. I think also being a bass player is naturally, you know, you're not a lead singer, you're not a, a, a violinist, you're not, uh, you know, you're not the star of the show. And, right. um, and it, it, it forces you to make some of those decisions and to act in some of those functions. Uh, but yes, from the standpoint of helping, I think a lot of the artists that we work with, my, my ambition for them is so that they don't have to worry about the stuff that I'm worrying about. Right, right. I want them to do the thing that, that they really want to do and to enable that and also to protect them. And, and I've said, I said this before, but, but to be sure that, you know, that they know what the pitfalls are and that they know what the opportunities are and that, um, that all the circumstances where I can help them to be sure that they're not going to get hurt, that, that I'm, I'm there for them and, right. I'm, I'm, and I'm there to, to be that safety net. Uh, that's yeah that's very cool to hear you talk about that um yeah the business end of it there's just so many uh like i'm not excited about numbers you know i have my things i'm good at and i like like this this podcast music premier podcasts is uh is solving an issue for me i want to do podcasts but i just don't want to get the thing off the ground <laughs> James has done such a great job of cre creating a, a community and he's had a passion for this for a long time, which attracted me. And then my relationship with him all of a sudden sparks this thread of solving a problem, <laughs> teaching me the business a little bit and things like that. And next thing I know it, here I am. And, and I think it's interesting how these little, uh, little sidetracks or interests can lead to some pretty cool opportunities. 
which leads me to a, another fun topic. Okay, so COVID happens. We just hit the celebr. Uh, we celebrated. We just acknowledged the anniversary of a year of shutdown. Yep. And uh, we musicians uh, had 2020 was a year for me with uh, the whole year booked out. Uh, besides what I do for uh, my day job, working for a big um, school, uh, the uh, the Naval School of Music, and all of a sudden it's gone. Now I'm grateful. I had a lot of backup um, people that didn't. They're you know they ran out of their they went through their savings, all these kinds of things. Yeah. I'm curious for you okay it starts we don't know what's happening we've got a year behind us to look back what are some of the things that um what were some of the, the obstacles you had to face and how did that end up evolving into some new opportunities uh thank you for that question and that's uh boy it's unbelievable to think it's been a year you know it's right? it's, it's both been grindingly slow and gone by in the blink of an eye mm. which is, is such a strange such a strange experience um so I think the first challenge is one that no one really thinks about before there's a problem. And that is generally speaking, the lack of visibility that we all have right now because of the rate of change, generally speaking, right? When we take a look at um, our, my age bracket and uh, I learned how to type on a typewriter, in the last you know, graduating class in my high school before cell phones and internet. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a very different time in terms of your ability to adapt the amount of uh, lag time that there was between occurrences and effects, generally speaking, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would say because of, of uh, information, the internet, the, the, the rapidity of life now, it's very, very different. So my job is always to not predict the future and be wrong, but to get a peek around the corner and just be able to see around the bend just far enough that um, I can make the adjustments that I need to make. Mm. And that's what I like, really, that's my job. I mean, if I could distill it down, my, my job, my job is problem solving and, and looking around the corner. Um, and I'm lucky that I have uh, some really good partners in other parts of the world, including in China, where we do a lot of work. And so at the turn of 2019-2020, uh, we had some ensembles which we were going to be putting on tour uh, in, in China um, for a number of months. And one of my partners over there called me up and said, hey, Bob, listen, you know, I think we might have to do something about this tour that we got coming up. There's a little virus problem. Of course, I'm sitting there on the phone with them and I'm realizing that I, I know I know how this story ends. Right. I mean, in, in, in a, honestly, like being a business owner and being so acutely aware of everything all the time, right? I need to be sure that my staff is safe, my artists are safe, my releases are being managed, that everything that needs to be attended to, uh, it's it's a tremendous amount of mental overhead, right? And, and in this particular case, I'm just simply used to doing this. I'm used to being able to just say, well, wait a minute, L let me race down to the worst case scenario. Um, and I did. And, you know, I think we, generally speaking, the the, the management of the company, we were all pretty much on the same page a couple months before things shut down that things were probably going to be in going in this direction. So by the time we shut things down, um, I think it was like March 12 or something like this, March mm -hmm. 14, I, I can't remember the exact date, but um, you know, we, we were, we were pretty well prepared to do it. I think um, some of the staff was more prepared than others because simply the fact that some of us used to working remotely, having staff in other parts of the world, you know, it, it's a little bit more normal um, to be off kilter in terms of schedule. But when we went uh, to work from home, it was, I think, a few weeks of disorientation. And then pretty quickly, the company adapted because it became very clear what not to do. So one thing I, I always talk about is, you know, what not to do. People don't really talk about that. Like, what's all the stuff that that you should not be worrying about, right? right? Well, when circumstances become such as they were last year, those decisions became an awful lot easier to make. And it became much more simple. So, I, you know, I've talked about this in other podcasts, but I love constraints. I love artistic constraints. I love constraints of all kinds. I think that they're really magnificent for... Um, making systems run faster and to be able to, to check and to see, is it working? Is it not working? And in this particular case, you know, um, we didn't have the opportunity to just say, Oh, listen, you know, go, go do whatever you want to do. I mean, I know a lot of people have probably felt that at that moment, just kind of like, Oh shit, you know, what are we going to do? Screw it. Um, <laughs> in, in this particular case, it became really clear to us that we had a very finite amount of, uh, of time and opportunity to focus. So all the stuff that had been getting, you know, all the cans that had been getting kicked down the road for things that we wanted to do, 
were things that suddenly became much more important to us in terms of our ability to continue to function. Um, meaning like, you know, diversifying geographically where we're working, thinking more about um, online presentation of concerts. We've been doing recordings online and virtually for, for ages, but to really optimize all that process and everything. Um, so like I said before, necessity is the mother of invention. And this really pushed us in a number of different directions. So uh, looking back, we made lemonade out of lemons. Um, and there's some really interesting new programs and projects and, and stuff that we've we've been doing that we would not have done otherwise, mm -hmm. including helping venues with live streaming, taking over um, live streaming and filming uh, broadcasts for orchestras uh, or orchestral seasons, doing all kinds of different like live events and everything, um, and including me doing a lot more of uh, pro bono educational seminars for students at universities and, and, and all kinds of things that I think are helpful generally. Mm -hmm. um, and it was because we were forced to do them. And right. And so, yeah, it, it's been a rough year. And I think we all very much miss being in the same room and collaborating in the same space. Um, but we've been able to keep recording, keep producing and, and keep working. So knock on wood. It, yeah, it continues. That, that's awesome to hear. So you're, you know, what not to do? What can you speak to some of those? I'm curious what that would be um, like a, a couple of highlights of things that you figured out not to do. OK, when you see a line, don't get in it. Right. Everybody sees a line like you go up to the museum. There's a line of like 100 people like right. everybody's instinct is, oh, well, let's, let's get in the line. Well, there's a million other ways to get through than to just do the thing that everybody else is doing. Right. So I think it's really important to keep in mind that there's always a multiplicity of ways to get through any particular problem. And if you think that there's only one, well, you might be right. Maybe there is only one way to get into the museum, but I'm going to bet you that there isn't. So I, if you play the percentages, I think that that's, that's one thing people should consider not doing is don't automatically get in that line. Walk around the property first. Take a look around. Are there any other entrances? Because there usually are, right? right. Um, I'm always thinking about, um, well, a, a major what not to do for me is, you know, um, well, don't be a dick, first of all. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's really like first and foremost. Um, you know, life is, life is too short to take things personally in that regard and to to be um, in, in to be overly tight. And it takes a long time to get past that tightness, right? Yeah. But the quicker you get past that tightness, um, the, the easier it is to create the right environment to work. And another huge thing I would say, um, <laughs> so many what not to do is, um, you know, what not to do, my God, you know, I guess, look, I could go on and on and on and on about this topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. I, well, no, no, but but it's it's just it's so it's so crazy. Like when you see how many people they run through the same mistakes over and over again, right? right and I right. did it. It's the only way I learned how to uh, what not to do. Um, and I'm constantly thinking about you know collaboration and how to make uh, studio work go easier, how to make life go go easier, and, and all these things. Right. Um, you know, never be focused on just trying to do the thing that's right in front of you. It's part of a bigger picture, right? Like That's so, so good. So you've always got this thing where it's like, it's easy for us as musicians to just be honed right in, right there. Right. But it's part of a bigger picture. And I think when people are talking about, for example, deals. So let's say you're playing a gig, right? I mean, everyone's trying to extract as much money from the booking agent as possible, right? I mean, right. that's what a lot of bands do. Right. It's not really necessarily the best play. Um, you know, think about what the longer term relationship could be. Think about what the value of things is over time as opposed to right now. Now, I mean, again, if you're starving right now, then you're starving and that's the hierarchy of needs. And you, and, and, and then that tells you what you need to do. Right. Um, if you have the luxury of not starving, then you might be able to play a different game. And it's just a matter, in my opinion, of, of um, figuring it out in real time as it occurs. So I got a, I got a laundry list of these things and I, I chuckle because I could, I mean, it could be like like the Moses' Ten Commandments. I could inscribe these things in, right. <laughs> on tablets, you know? I love what you're saying. Um, just that the illustration of don't get in the line. Uh, it, it, it is, uh, it's the easy way to, to, to waste a lot of time, mm -hmm. you know, often. I mean, sure sometimes is. it is the, the, the thing you have to do, but most cases not. And so... That's a that's a big one. I'll be listening back to that one again. <laughs> Doing it's, on that thought. That was a good one. Well, it, it's it's an important thing to remember that a human nature is human nature. Yeah. And um sometimes it's good to hang back, you know, just kind of survey. Yeah. I've been doing that a lot lately. <laughs> just gonna step it back because I a lot of bandwagons going on. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, what do you think about this? I'm not gonna say right now. I'm just gonna watch what's going on. <laughs> 
<laughs> I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I, um, I certainly have an aspect of my personality, which is extraordinarily outspoken. And I've also learned when to zip it. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, and, you know, and like on that topic, like, you know, the, like the what not to do. Right. And in the same kind of like zip it stuff. Um, it took me a long time to realize that, you know, power is used inversely proportional to, <laughs> to the amount that you have. Right. Mm. And like, you know, it's, it only takes an eyedropper worth of, um, of pressure to get what you want to get done sometimes. And the key is to not use a fire hose. And, right. you know, it, it took me a long time to come around to that, that, that uh, blunt force and brute force. I mean, of course it can work, but how, how sustainable is that? Mm. Um, and, you know, and even thinking about from a production standpoint and, and it's an anecdote I've told, I have a, a wonderful colleague, um, a conductor, he's 85 years old in the Czech Republic, wonderful guy. And he told me something great, like long time ago, he said, you know, he conceives of conducting like driving a car. He said, you don't drive a car and grip it with your, your knuckles white all the time. You know, you're driving a car on the highway and, and the car is basically driving itself. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, yeah, you need to get off the highway or take a turn or the road might bend kind of, you know, sharply and you need to take the wheel and take control. But for the most part, you know, it's a passive process and you have to allow it to be a passive process. Orchestra is no Beethoven, orchestra is no Mozart. You know, no, no conductor needs to sit there and really show them everything all the time. Um, but, you know, at certain junctures, the conductor does. And, and I think that that's that kind of dichotomy of, being in uh, being in total control and having complete command and knowing that you don't need to be in total control and have complete command all the time. Mm, that's good. Golly, Bob, I could listen to this all night. <laughs> this is good stuff, man. This is it's the result of a lifetime of errors and mistakes. Right. Trust me. So, Well, I've, I've run into, I've had been fortunate to run into some really cool people that have had successes in their own right. And one of the things that always resonates with me is that they, there's a giftedness to it. There's some natural instincts that they have that I admire that I don't have. But but what it comes down to that everybody grows from the those face plants in life, you know? How do you learn to zip it? Well, you speak too much and you get your butt handed to you a few times. Right, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, I guess I'm not the center of the universe. <laughs> you know, those kind of reality checks and, <clears throat> you know, it, it, we get – you know, the advantage of the gray hair yep. is the is the perspective of having uh, gone from the idealistic, untested, lots of, you know, thoughts and excitement and then uh, come out of it seasoned, you know, yes. uh, and we we able to shed the things aren't working for us, learning to, to be perceptive. Oh, maybe this isn't the line I should get into to your illustration earlier. So that's yeah. that's really cool. I, um, so just finishing up on the idea of COVID, um, you know, it's affected your business, but your business has continued on. You made some adjustments. Um, I remember back in 2008 when we were dealing with some economic issues and I asked this restaurant owner, I was working as restaurant. I said, so how has it that you survived and these others don't he's, and it was to, I think to your point earlier about uh, making adjustments, he said, well, I have a very expensive wine collection. I unloaded half of it. <laughs> I can't afford to keep that in there when nobody's going to buy it. And I made some adjustments and I'm good to my staff. They don't fight and they don't quit, <laughs> yeah. you know? And yeah. I'm like, Oh, so you made adjustments, you know, it's good. Yeah. You know, but that was back in the day, you know, this isn't pandemic. People were all dealing with the economy. The bubble blew up and the mortgage fraud and all the things that made things, uh, you know, gas prices go up and living expenses got crazy. Now we're at the the this most <clears throat> incredibly unique for us, our generation, I guess. Um, what would you say are? I, I think you spoke to some of them, but is there a, a, a one or two positives that have evolved from this whole thing that you are now grateful? Like it's not to be silver lining and uh, just pie in yeah. the sky kind of thinking, but legitimately, some positives that come out of this for you. Not that we wanted anybody to go through this, but that you yeah, no, sure, yeah. yeah well, curious. well, look, I think um, I think a lot of people float through life. Um, I think a lot of people aren't necessarily fully engaged in what's happening um, mm. in their world, and and I say that as someone, obviously, like <laughs> once you begin to think about what's happening in places where there is pain and hurt and suffering, and once you really focus and you allow your mind to understand these things. And once you visit places like, you know, I mean, I've, I've been 
fortunate enough to visit some places that are very different. Cuba, you know, I mean, life in Cuba is extremely different from life here and, and in China, extremely different. Mm-hmm. Russia, very different. Um, it's hard to turn away from that sometimes, right? So I think that's a good thing. Um, I would always rather know than not know. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, I think knowledge is a good thing. So I think one benefit from this uh, pandemic has been, it's now a lot more clear how much worse things could be for a lot of people. Right. And and how much worse things are, unfortunately. And that needs to get fixed. And, and sure. you know, obviously, I think a lot of world governments are working on that. Um, I hope sure. a lot more world people work on that, not just, yeah. the, you know, all the rest. Uh, but I think that that's one benefit here is that we can assume this is not the last pandemic. We can assume this is not the last catastrophe. I think we've got a lot more catastrophes coming down the oh, yeah. coming down the pike. So I think preparation is always a good thing. When I was talking a little bit before about um, being able to see around the bend, you know, not necessarily mm-hmm. see the future and predict the future, but to be able to at least anticipate through probability, understanding, pattern recognition that there are things that can go wrong and we should be prepared for them. So I think that that's one real benefit. Um, uh, more on the downside, although I think there's always upside with downside, right? Like we're, we're seeing right now that there's going to be um, a, a lack of access to, to inventory, which will be pushed out in terms of its time, right? So mm. I mean, you can bet right now. Um, well, I'll tell you, I mean, I've already purchased plane tickets from now until the end of the year for a, a bunch of my, my work projects, because guess what? I'm going to give the airline my money anyway, right? So right. <laughs> I might as well do it now while I can get a great deal and no one else is doing it. So what we're going to see in the next month, of course, is going to be boom. It's going to be really hard to get a reservation at a restaurant. And if you do, you're going to have to start the plan a few months ahead. You know, I think you're going to have to do the same thing with travel. We have to do the same thing with gigs, with jobs. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I know that that it means less opportunity for a lot of people in the short term. But if that's the sacrifice for people planning ahead, um, then I think it's a good trade-off. And, and mm-hmm. I think if anything, what we've gotten used to is, um, as a culture, you know, in, in musically, I think artistically, it's just, well, oh, okay, I can do it now. And, and I can get what I want right away in this kind of immediate access to everything, which I didn't have growing up. You didn't yeah. have growing up. Nope. I, I remember I was, I was doing an interview the other day, um, a written interview, and I was talking about how in 1987, I saw on the TV show Solid Gold, I saw Arthur Brown, they wheeled out of retirement. I think he was like dusted off physically and he comes off and he does fire. Right. And I'm sitting there, I'm watching this. I'm like 10 years old at the time. I'm like, what in the holy hell am I looking at? Yeah. And, and you know, I, so, I, so what did I do? I went to go find the record, but the record's out of print. You can't find the record. Right. And there's right. no internet. There's no nothing. It took me years. I went to yard sales. I went to libraries. I mean, I went oh, yeah. all over the place to find this record. And um, when I eventually found it at, at all things of a, 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 of all things at a church sale, right? The God of Hellfire, I find it at a church sale. <laughs> and, and, and the satisfaction of holding that record, that was wow. amazing. And, and guess what? That's how I've hunted down every one of these Alembic bases, every one of my instruments. It's like, I'm, it takes me three years to find it, but I find it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that we're going to have to go back to that model in some sense, uh, simply because of the lack of inventory that's going to be available to everybody. That's yeah. going to mean painful things for the music industry and the arts industry in, in the short term. And I, I am knocking on wood and hoping that we can find the support to make it through and everyone will um, come out the other side better for it. I'm seeing that already. I'm in a, a, in a, a band now that's gotten back into working in public. And people, if they don't plan ahead, they're not getting in. You have to have reservations. Right. The place is is booked. And and I, I mean, you remember yeah. the days where you weren't sure if you're going to have a crowd. Maybe you might have them for a set. They're there the whole time. <laughs> they're not. Right. They're like, they're hungry. And they've, they've paid the price to plan ahead to get there. And they're being safe and everything. You know, everyone's yeah. social distancing. And uh, I, I appreciate it. It's been good for my soul to see... Uh, people so interested in getting back into supporting live music. It's just like, I think what you're saying though, too, you've mentioned is it is going to be hard if you have, if somebody has been very passive in their music, in their career development, I guess it's with any job or any career or business. Passivity is, is going to cost people dearly because uh, inventory access is not going to be yeah i think that's true we're already seeing that the instant access is starting to yeah absolutely. i'm having to get real patient about yeah, absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah you just alluded earlier just very quickly you just kind of passed over it you said something about being an only child 
and you, you know, uh, you speak into your personality type and whatnot. But I'm curious. I use that word too much, maybe, but um, I am curious. <laughs> it's a good word. <laughs> What's the main influence? What's what has been the thing that's influenced you? Is there a model in your mind? Like I have my models that had me thinking about the music business and those guys that i saw and looked up to were working in a way that could provide for a family they made the music a trade i was influenced by that what what model for you was what kept like kept you moving forward and thinking that you could have the audacity to believe you could do it Wow. Well, I mean, I think clearly the who was like my favorite group growing up as a kid. Mm. And I I saw the who play and I'm like, oh, man, that's just that's just what I want to do with the rest of my life. I I love it. And um, once I kind of stepped out and started to play and really began to gig, like I started gigging when I was I think 13 was my first gig, did my first kind of recording at 14, did uh, my first short tour at 15, 15 and a half in that ballpark. Um, So like it was like from the frying pan into the fire. And, um, you know, by short tour, I mean, it was a weekend in, in, in New York and played like three gigs, but it doesn't matter. It was still like, you know, being out and away from home and in, in this kind of immersive um, feeling. So getting in that zone isn't was enough and has been enough. Like, I guess as a player, like, you know, when you're in the zone with your, your group and you're playing and there's a dialogue happening that is not conscious and, uh, you're just, you're, you're doing, you're making, I mean, that's just such magic. And, uh, I miss it. This is the longest stretch I've gone without playing a gig since I was, I think seriously, 13 years old, Wow, I'm 44 yeah. now I'm about to be, become 45. Um, it's been, you know, eight months, I think, since I played a gig, seven mm-hmm. months, something like that. Um, so it, it's been in those moments that, that to me, that, that has propelled me. So like kind of the early influence and in saying, well, I, you know, I, I want to do this, but I was admiring a model, which is which has evaporated just as you just said, you know, you know, to provide for family by being a touring bass player. I mean, it's impossible, right? I mean, this is just simply doesn't occur. So then I think the, the kind of next thing that really gave me my, um, just my, just the, the greatest feeling is just working in the studio mm. is being in a studio, creating, writing, um, producing. I just, it, it was enough and it is enough to just get me up every single day and be like, all right, I, I gotta, I gotta make some sound. I gotta do something. Um, and then from that point on, I think it became much more of like, well, wait a minute. Um, it's possible to really affect change and to make a difference in something bigger than my own head, right? Bigger than my own aspiration. Like, you know, being in the studio or, or playing a gig, like it's very much about me, very much about my own feelings, right? But then I, I as I was working in classical music and, and, you know, when I began maybe 16 years ago, um, seriously producing classical realizing that I could, I could help that there was um, a function that was much broader than myself and I think anybody when like, I don't, you know, there's no, like I said, only child and, and all this. It's like, I think when anybody realizes that there's something much larger than what their own interest is, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's kind of no going back from that, I think, mm-hmm. at a certain point. And, and that's, that's what's really kind of kept me going. That's a good answer. Yeah. There's a lot of factors that are connected to that. Um, I, I have known over the years that that classical world, I, I sometimes I found it in, intimidating. I'm, I would consider myself more of a commercial bassist. I, I love playing jazz. I play upright. I play classical. I play, you know, I got my electric basses. I play all the styles. But all that to say in the end is the classical world, there was this thing in the, in the older jazz musicians, this um, resistance to understand the technology and mm. uh, things that I would run into. And then somebody like you comes along and say, well, I know how to do that. You, you do? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I, it's easy for me. Let me help you, right? I mean, is that where this kind of went for you? That yeah. got you from electric bass player to helping cr- classical style, that genre artist, make things happen for them? Definitely. Absolutely, man. And look, you know, I guess if we could say it in the most broad capacity, I think being a producer is um, creating a set of conditions, Right creating a right. set of conditions where certain things are possible that, that might not be otherwise possible. Um, and that, I guess at the, that's like the 30,000 foot view. Right. And, and that to me, that really is kind of what I do. And um, yeah, to be able to set those conditions and to help to make this thing happen that wouldn't have otherwise happened. Yeah. It's a very nebulous skill set, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's so, it's so funny how many um, elements of, of the music business are so inscrutable to people who are not in the business, right? No one knows what a conductor does unless you really have like explain it to them. Um, 
and I guess that the the further I've gone in the industry, the more nebulous my position has become. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mind that one bit because I like to be kind of thinking at the the just you know like at the kind of point where I can see a little bit further out in the on the vista, and it's enjoyable for me. And uh, and yeah, I, I think that that's kind of where naturally it was going to go eventually. And um, and I found it out along the way. You know, I, I don't think you know that you have perspective until you have perspective. Right. And you certainly don't have it when you're 18 years old. So no, no, you don't know what you don't know until after you learn it. Was what I always heard. And uh, yeah, that's that's uh, it holds true more now than ever. But I think you have to have that youthful ignorance and just energy to just go for it. And and then you know, life handed you a couple of uh, hard knocks. Was there any one particular obstacle in your in your development that was a, a make or break turning point for you, where it caused you to have to really dig deep and and push forward? Like, um, I mean, we 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 dealt with COVID, and we talked about that a bit, but something earlier in the process, perhaps. That sure. Um, okay. So, well, first of all, uh, on the COVID front, uh, I would say that that initial phase of the virus that was the one of the most challenging moments I've ever had as a CEO to address my staff, um, to, to really embrace the fact that I'm responsible for salaries, right. families, um, right. intellectual property, right? right. I mean, artists over the course of so many years, trusting me with their work and right. knowing that you, you, you talked about kind of making real time adjustments, like knowing that, um, I didn't want to have to make any of those adjustments because of what the implications would be for right. other people. Right. And and I and I have I have laid my <laughs> I've laid my ass and my wallet on the line for this organization, this company, um, many many times over the years. I think going back um, to the very beginning would be was just those first few years. I would say the first three years or so were extremely challenging um, because to know in your heart and in your head that you can do a certain thing, and to have to try and figure out a way to explain it without having the track record that you might want to have to be able to do it. Right. So mm. to be able to say, well, listen, you know, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, and I can do this. And all those things come together to actually not only do what you want to have done, but to exceed it mightily. Mm. And then when they say, okay, well, show me. And then I say, well, I, I don't have it all in one place. Right. It's really hard to explain. And I guess the other way of, of putting it here would be um, in my mind, I had essentially, I had Parma's structure in my mind before at the very beginning, I, I knew what I wanted. I would say that in the last year, we've probably grown or year and change um, a bit beyond what I, I, I had anticipated in, in terms mm. of, um, you know, the, the kind of depth of expertise in various areas, which could be considered secondary or tertiary, like such as video production, digital marketing, straight up, you know, web design, all these kind of things, which are the outgrowth of our projects. They weren't our primary business, nor mm. are they our primary business, but they've all turned into incredibly meaningful tasks for us because of just the day-to-day -day operation. So right. before all that occurred, you know, not having all those things in-house, not having everybody at my disposal, um, which was the concept from the beginning. And one thing I've said frequently is that um, if someone came to me then and said, Bob, you know, in X many years, this is going to be your, in 13 years, this is going to be your, your operating budget. Here it is on day one, go make your vision. I guarantee you I would have failed miserably. I guarantee you it would have crashed and burned immediately because it was the kind of logical growth of the organization, the concentric growth the miniature failures around the the borders and the edge that were that were and are constant and nonstop. And I've described mm. it like like soda pop, right? It's just bubbles on the soda pop bursting constantly, like all these tiny fuck ups and mistakes and problems and and, and things that I need to unstick and fix. Mm. Um, all of that is what led to this. If not for all of that, this would not have happened. And there was no way to have jump started that process. So I would tell you that the, the real agony in it has been knowing you know, that, that I know eventually where I, I generally want to get. Um, and my God, this just, it's like running in a pool mm. is, is what it has felt like for, for many, many years. So um, to be able to right now feel like we've got some, some good momentum behind us, um, it, it feels good. And then beyond that, I would just say, again, when you have those circumstances where there is conflict um, and you need to rush towards it and not run away from it, those are always a challenge when you have, an artist with whom you have a disagreement or an employee where there's a problem. 
um, or, or anything like that. And, and I guess the moral of my story here for, for the, the folks listening to this podcast, who I think are probably somewhat in my same mindset of, um, you know, having to take your career, uh, you know, into your own hands and, mm-hmm. and take the bull by the horns. I think my, my advice is embrace conflict, run, run towards it. It's the quickest way to accelerate. It's the quickest way to move forward. It's the quickest way to achieve resolution. The issue is so many people that don't want to do it. And yeah. because it sucks, it's painful and it hurts. And in those early years, when the danger of the fallout of those confrontations or those problems was so much greater and what the impacts could be, um, it's all the more important to embrace that concept. So, mm-hmm. so counterintuitively, you know, I've, I've said this a couple of times to, that I, I guess summing up what I've said in this podcast is uh, I do believe in, in counterintuitiveness. Mm-hmm. And when it's the most delicate, sometimes it's the most important to to just embrace the chaos and um, and, and find your way through. That's good. Oh, that's good, Bob. Yeah, I, I resonate with a lot of what you're saying. That is good advice. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been, I've been through the hammers of hell, so I, I I'm, yeah. I'm well, it, it, that's why it's so substantial what you're saying. There, it's not just um, weak platitudes, but this is coming from a place of pain and and uh, growth, wrestling with things. This is yeah. great. Yeah. I, I mean, it can sound, you know, like you know, I'm sure some people will be listening to this and be like, "Oh, who's this guy?" You know, self help guru or something. But the fact is. Um, you know, it really is about this kind of early recognition of these things. And if there's anything that I've wanted to do in my kind of non-musical side, you know, in the side where I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on podcasts or, or, or universities is if I can help accelerate or jumpstart anybody to, to, to think more critically a little bit sooner in life, then I've done something good. And, um, you know, I I wish someone had jumpstarted me a little bit earlier. Well, we, we, um, everything I hear podcast wise, the, the good ones are like little rudder adjustments for me. I don't know what they're going to lead to later, but I know that the little adjustment now is going to lead to a better, perhaps better destination. I having years behind me now and the people that are attracted to the musicpreneur podcast and podcasts like this, it's like, and maybe you can relate to this in that, oh, there are other people think like me. Like and and this is how they're doing it. Oh, that helps me. Okay, cool. You know, because there's a there's a uniqueness of people. There's a uniqueness to the idea that I want to make something happen that yeah. doesn't exist yet, perhaps. Right. I want to manifest something out of a nebulous conceptual reality into something tangible and real. That's that's a, a uniquely artistic problem. Right. And and it helps so much to be a part of a community with people like you who are willing to share from your experiences and um and then that keeps encouragement going so i i'm i i've really benefited from this conversation a lot bob i really appreciate it oh thank you i really appreciate the time it's been great chatting yeah yeah um yeah i was very resistant to get real base nerd on you with the olympics and i will just say that i am a big appreciator of fine instruments and those are fine instruments the ones you the pictures you sent and uh, i used to own a uh I had an Olympic six-string, but the Epic series. Oh, and nice! Then, and the thing is, I thought, you know, that's that's not the the high-end Olympic. But now those same pieces from the nineties, right? They're like sought after. Dude, so, you know, it's so funny. I get the uh, I get one of the the uh, Entwistle models, right? But this is like before they were making his signature models. This is way back in the in the eighties, right? So right, right. I hunted this thing down. This is pre-internet. This is back when, you know, like I'd be going through like the one ads and stuff, you know, making yeah. phone calls. I was like I don't know, 13, 14 years old, 14 years old. And, um, and you know, I, I hunted this thing down. It was 2,400 bucks down at a, uh, a, a, I think Sam Ash in New York. Uh-huh. They shipped it to a Sam Ash in Connecticut and the price had dropped down to 1,200 bucks at this point, six months later, because no one wanted it at the time. I mean, no one wanted that model, right? That, this right. is one of those you know, specialty items. Yeah. Maybe a year later I called up and it still hadn't sold and I had them send it up to Boston. I, I took a look at it. Um, I had saved up $600 by the time they rung me up, it was $625 and I got them to throw in a, a strap with it. And, so <laughs> it too. and I still have the base. <laughs> so Right. And I was like four, I was like 15, I think at that time. I was 15 years old. So that's great. Yeah. I was, I was, I was on top of it. I, <laughs> I believe in um I believe in in acquiring what you want to acquire and and if you love it then go get it. Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's yeah. good. Well, 
Bob, I'm going to call it a night in in uh, in our uh, our episode tonight. Uh, well, whatever time it is for everybody's listening. And again, you have a, a generous spirit about you uh, to to share your your journey. And uh, I would encourage everybody to look up your uh, you're at Bob Lord uh, Music. That's com. correct. Yep. And parmarecordings.com. And, uh, and yeah, and you just check us out. We get all kinds of great stuff, great music all the time, uh, online concerts. We put out, you know, eight or so records a month of classical, some jazz, some world music. And um, there's a, a lot of music out there to be heard. And some of it is ours. And I think it's quite good. So yeah. I think you should check it out. Well, I was li- listening to some of the things that have been posted and, and I, I'm really interested. You've got the the Playground Arcade coming out. You have a really cool story about that album. That did I come? It's coming out, or it's on its way out soon. Yeah, it's coming out in April 27. I released a little five song kind of sampler of it. Um, yeah. But it's coming out soon, and it's a mix of prog rock, orchestral, jazz, sound effects. Wow. It's it's nuts, man. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's a really cool record, and it's the kind of thing that for people who have eclectic musical taste, for people yeah. who um, like to be surprised and disoriented a little bit. Uh, and, and those who, you know, they want to hear a lot of color in their music. Um, this certainly has a lot of color. So I, I would suggest people check I'm it out. I'm looking forward to, to sitting with that for a little bit. And then you yeah. also have that solo recording you said you got coming out. As a, can you talk to that just a moment? What- so so I, I get to, I, I got this one, which is uh, Playland Arcade, uh, April 27th. That's my solo record. And then I got oh, an man. album this summer called Northern Burner coming out. That's my my band Dreadnoughts record. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, I got yeah, it. Yeah, and that Sorry. it's it's completely instrumental. Um, you know, we've always done some stuff mainly, you know, a few vocals here and there. Yeah, it's one piece of music, about thirty five minutes long. Um, it's the the I think the purest distillation of our kind of strange Americana experimental yeah. prog lunatic freak out shit that we do. So. Uh, <laughs> So, I, I'm really excited. 25 years in the same band. I mean, I, it's crazy to think I've been in this band longer than I was alive before it. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So much to look forward to. Yeah, I would encourage everybody check out Bob uh, in in your website. Does a great service to find. You know, if you want to know who Bob is, you just just get curious and look him up because. <laughs> Uh, there is a lot to enjoy uh, in your website. You had a lot, and I didn't even get a chance to talk about Croatia. Um, oh my God! Yeah, yeah, I, I got to go to Croatia. I've been to Russia. I've been to all these places that like you were talking about, and then just the world is perspective. So perhaps for another time, uh, let's we, let's do it again sometime. It would yeah. be great to chat, and we can uh, we we can talk base in in Eastern Europe. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, thank cool. you so much, Bob. Thanks, Jim. Visit musicpreneur.com for more podcasts and access to the exclusive Musicpreneur mobile app that contains content not available anywhere else on the web. That's musicpreneur.com. Thanks for listening.